Hi everyone, it's Tony Nash with Plugged and Unplanned. And I'm excited today because, well, this book could be all about me. I've got Michelle Gibbings with me and her book is called Bad Boss and subtitled What to Do If You Work for One, Manage One or Are One. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Hi, Tony. How are you? I'm good. And so, bad boss. Bad. Are you an expert on bad bosses? Well, I've been in all categories. So I've worked for one, I've been one, and I've managed one. So, you know, I certainly was writing about something that I've experienced. And, you know, that's, I think, the thing about this. Now, when I was writing it, I had people who said to me, but no one's going to admit that they're a bad boss. And I said, but that's part of the problem. I said, because if you can't admit where you've got issues, then you're not going to be prepared to do anything about it. And the critical part of leadership is being able to stick your hand up and go, actually, I can do better, I can do more, and find then the way that you can do that, whether it's through coaching or support or development work or just your own internal work, because everybody can get better. Right. So it's kind of like um, you, have, you have to be a bad boss but open for, for improvement because I guess if you're a tyrant or if you're you know, some sort of uh, you know, maniac, they'll never – ever concede that they are a bad boss because they they enjoy being not being bad but they just enjoy ruling with an iron fist and so therefore that you're never going to pry them open or do you feel like they can they can also be guided into into shifting people have to want to change i don't think you can force somebody to change and so for me, there's a couple of angles to that. One, it's that sense of self-awareness. To what extent do I actually know that I'm a bad boss and that I need to improve? Um, and how much do I want to change? And I've seen senior leaders who have had very, you know, great executive coaches where the executive coach has basically thrown their hands up and said, this person doesn't want to change. So you're wasting your money investing because they think they're the smartest person in the room. They think they're amazing. You know, the classic narcissist they don't think they need to change. Now, that is still, I think, a rarity. You know, most leaders, when they see, you know, that hard evidence that there's more that they can do, most people want to be better leaders, but then they find themselves in circumstances and a context where they struggle, um, and that's where they need more support. And so part of the, I guess, the genesis for the book was it's really easy to point fingers in a relationship to go, oh, well, it's that person's fault. This isn't working. They need to change. And I really, you know, everybody needs to play a part, you know, for relationships to work at work, everybody, not just the boss, but employees. If everyone can bring their best selves to work and be compassionate and understanding and have those really good conversations with each other about what's working and what's not working, then that creates that fertile ground to be able to enable everybody to flourish. Mm. So so you split up into three areas. Uh, what to do if you work for one, whether you manage one or you are one. Of those three, if you're working for one or you manage a bad boss or you are a bad boss, what, where do you get most success with the people that you work with or, or who's like managing a bad boss that can be like, politics and awkwardness? If you're working for one, do you feel like if you work for one, you can, you've got more at your disposal? You can, with honesty and, and with a bit of uh, and being a little brave um, and it, how do you feel about those three things where you've got 
yep. most access to making a change? I think all three have access and also you've got different degrees of leverage and different degrees of power. Um, and the reason that I wrote the part around, you know, what to do if you're managing a bad boss is often what happens in organisations is there'll be someone and everyone knows they're, you know, I'm going to swear for a minute, you know, they're the classic kind of, you know, not nice person, the asshole in the, in the organisation, but they somehow bring in the big bickies. They're the, the top-notch salesperson. And so the organisation forgives them and says, yeah, we know they're ineffective, we know they're a bully, we know they're like this, but they bring in the big deals. Um, and, well, that's actually not on. If you're the leaders of the organisation and you know that you've got leaders working in your organisation who are ineffective, who bully, belittle, just are genuinely not nice people to be around. Well, it's actually on you because you're not doing anything about it. So, and you are in a position of power. You have the power to one, provide coaching and development support for them, but also to get them to move on and go somewhere else. If you don't think they are part of the culture that you want. Now, when you're in a an employee relationship, you in some respects have less power because and it depends on the relationship and it depends on the, you know, how much you need the role. You know, there's always, you know, different kind of bargaining chips that people have in relationships. But, you know, it can be harder for employees. And so part of it, understanding it from the employee perspective is to go, okay, as an employee, firstly, check, are you a good employee? So, you know, if you're going to be blaming the boss, what are you bringing to the table? What are you bringing to the equation? Is there something perhaps where you're not playing your part? And then really understand where the boss comes from. Because if you can understand the context in terms of are they, like, is this behaviour typical? Are they always hard to work with? Are they always toxic? Or is this inconsistent behaviour? Because if it's inconsistent behaviour, then perhaps they're just really struggling at the moment because of other pressures from their boss. And if you can be more understanding and more meet their needs, then that's going to better balance the way you, that relationship works. Um, and then lastly, for the, the leader, you know, and I, you know, I will stick my hand up and I say this, you know, I look back early in my career and I was a bad leader and not because I was a bad person. I just had all these weird expectations and assumptions about what it meant to be a leader, much of it which was sort of old-fashioned kind of ideas. I think I sort of subconsciously um, absorbed them from my dad. And I'm not saying my dad was a bad leader, but, you know, he just sort of, you know, times change in terms of hierarchy and how relationships work. Um, and I had an amazing leader who I worked for. And fortunately, early in my career, she pulled me aside and she said to me, you know, Michelle, I get that you're ambitious and I get that you want to do a good job and that's brilliant. That's great. But no one's actually going to remember the work you do that someone will come in after you and they'll do the job differently. They may even do it better. The only thing people are going to remember is the impact that you've had on them and how you made them feel. And for the people that you work with, like report to you, your, your role is to develop them, to help them to get to places that they can't get to without having worked for you. And she said, when you do that, the work just happens. And so it totally shifted my perspective. So I shifted from focusing on task to focusing on people. And I found by focusing on the people, the work just got done. Um, so it was, it was, I mean, it probably for some people sitting and listening to this, they might go, gee, Michelle, that's not really revolutionary. But for me at the time it was, it really shifted my focus. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not what you're talking about here is not rocket science. It's re, it is actually um, refocusing your mindset and changing your priorities, which isn't doesn't sound like a lot, but it actually does 
uh, take a bit of effort to to really um, modify the way that you show up in the world. So if your if your colleagues way back then when you were a bad boss, um, or even your great boss who had a bad employee, knew that you actually wrote a book about this now. Well, I mean, do, are you still in touch with them? Do you know whether the, like where they go? That's 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 ridiculous. Michelle wrote this book. You know, like of all people, or, or do you think would they go? They go, yeah, that would sound right because she was on a mission. Ah, look, what a great question. It's interesting. I am up to book number three. I don't think this could have been book number one. Um, and also, I think that was part of my identity shift. You know, I often say to people, when you move through your career, you know, I had 20-odd-plus years in corporate and then six years doing what I'm doing now. And I still remember when I wrote my first book, my publisher saying to me, oh, are you really excited? This is so exciting. And I said, oh, God, no, I feel like I'm going to vomit. And she said to me, oh, that's pretty extreme. I haven't had that as a, a response before when, you know, your publication's coming out. And I said, I'm waiting for the world to judge me i'm waiting for all of these people that i used to work with to go who does michelle gibbings think that she is you know writing a book what she thinks she's an author um by second book i you know you kind of ignore that that sense um of worry because you realize that your identity shifts and also you get good feedback and so for me it was interesting actually where the genesis of the book came and i give credit to my brother-in-law because um, he was talking about, you know, after I'd written my second book, he said, oh, so what's the third book? I said, oh, look, I'm still pondering on a few ideas because you should write a book about bad bosses. Everyone's got a story about a bad boss. Um, and then, but he wanted to call it Bastard Bosses, but then the publishers wouldn't let me write a book called Bastard Bosses. And so then as I started thinking about it, I thought, well, hang on, though. It's important to actually look at this through the three lenses because it's not just about a relationship that's one way. The relationship goes two ways and there's multiple parties that are in the relationship in terms of how you make this work. Um, I have often wondered whether when people read the book, whether they've been able to go, I wonder if, wonder if that's me. I wonder if that... Um, I've ne I'm yet to have someone who's rung me, Tony, to go, I spotted where I am in the book. So I think I'm okay. You just say that names and, and circumstances have been cha changed to protect the innocent or the guilty. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's so great. So so three books, and I'm just looking here at the first couple uh, to give people an idea. So Step Up, how to, build, uh, how to Build Your Influence at Work, and then your second one, Career Leap, How to Reinvent and Liberate Your Career. So they sound like uh, books that uh, for anyone that's listening to this podcast, you might want to dive back and, and look at um, your list of titles that you've already written. Um, we can now call this a trilogy. Um, you're up there with uh, Tolkien and others. Um, and so, well, I would say when I finished um, reading Lord of the Rings when I was in, I think, grade eight, I cried at the end of Lord of the Rings because it had finished. So I'm hoping that no one cries at the end of reading one of my books. Right. Or vomits, um, <laughs> um, as, the, as the case may be. So, so when you – you obviously do a lot of one-on-one -on work, one -on -one work as well with – I assume – uh, probably private as well as uh, corporate work. What is there anything now with the pandemic for those that are listening? Um, as we as release the podcast, it'll be during the pandemic. But there might be people who are coming back later and reflecting on what happened during the pandemic, and uh, and you'll be um, comforted to know that this is all behind us. But has there been uh, has this been even more so where um, you know, not bad bosses, but just different circumstances have brought the best and worst out of people. What are you seeing? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think when you have a crisis, you do see 
some leaders absolutely thrive in the time of a crisis and other leaders crumble because of the pressure. What I'm seeing across the board, and I think it's particularly acute in Victoria, it's just so different in in, in particularly um, CBD, sort of Melbourne era, area, um, the impact in terms of mental health, you know, everyone talks about it, but until you go through it, you know, and I, I live in Melbourne, my family live in Queensland, and, you know, I was saying this to my husband the other day, you know, I'm incredibly resilient. I'm a bounce back person. I have really high energy levels. And lockdown two, it is, I can see how it's messing with my head. And it's really interesting to watch. You know, I said to someone the other day, I feel like I'm my own human Petri dish because I'm watching my reactions to things and going, wow, that's really interesting because that's not me. And so it's the circumstance, the context, and I'm seeing that flow through with clients um, where they're saying, you know, it's really hard to get people motivated. I'm losing my motivation. And that's not because they're not interested in their work. It's just there's this heaviness and this tiredness. Um, and also people's circumstances are quite unique. And so what I've been saying to leaders is, you know, often when we think about our team, we think of them as a collective. You really need to think about them as individuals because everybody's individual circumstances can be very, very different. You know, it's a very different situation for someone who is living on their own to someone who is with a partner and it's a very happy, solid relationship to someone who's homeschooling um, and their partner has lost their job. Uh, so it's really different um, challenges that are people that are facing. But the one thing I have sort of, I guess, not a warning sign, but a thing for leaders to really be alert to is that because unemployment is growing and there's a general sense of job insecurity, what that then means is that employees feel less comfortable to stick their hand up and go, this doesn't feel right, or I'm seeing something that isn't, I'm not comfortable with, you know, be it something where there's a process issue or a control issue. And that then means you're potentially in a very fertile environment for risk issues to occur. And so for leaders, it's really important. What are you doing to create that safety for employees to feel safe to go, I've noticed something that doesn't seem right. Because if you don't have that safe environment, People will just withdraw and they won't share perhaps in the way they used to share because they're worried about losing their job. Mm. Yes, it's, I mean, we're all in flux. It's, I hear it so often where no organisations as part of their you know, emergency plan folder where they pull this dusty folder off the shelf where they've sat down on a you know week's retreat to work out what they do if all these things happen. No one put down pandemic and even to Australia Post, no one mentioned pandemic and the whole world has to work from home and all these other things that we've had to contend with. It really is um, you know, uncharted territory, certainly in, this, in the last few generations. hundred years ago, they had to do that, but it was in a very different social and commercial environment. Um, you, you were very separated. So it, um, we're all, I mean, how many books are going to be written about COVID and about what happened and about all of the things that we learned and how, how even people working from home, how, how are we going to manage that well? How are people going to, going to uh, learn the skills that you would learn when you're actually at the office in a social uh, environment, um, feeding off leaders and, and uh, peers who have got skills that you, you can really learn from and develop? That's, that's all fragmenting at the moment. It's, it's, 
it's really going to be interesting to see how we how we continue to to grow and develop when we've been so separate for so long. Yeah, and look, and I also think the other thing as well, you know, it's interesting in the early stages of the pandemic, a lot of people were saying, loving working from home, never want to go back into the office. And I'm still seeing that. There's a lot of people who go, I really do want to spend a big chunk of my time working from home. But people are missing that casual corridor conversation, the Friday night or the Thursday night drinks. And so you will see, see people who want to come back into the office, but they're going to come back into the office for different reasons. Um, and big chunks of the workforce will still, you know, work from, from home. And it might be they only go into the office one or two days a week. I mean, I look at my work. I used to fly every single week. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, oh, God, what's this going to mean for the business? And it's been really interesting because big chunks have just so easily shifted into an online format. Um, far better than I had ever expected. And I sit back and go, hmm, going forward, there will be things I absolutely need to travel for, but there are lots of things that I used to travel to Sydney for that I won't travel to Sydney for in the future because I don't need to. And I think, you know, when you put the kind of climate change perspective over it, just in terms of, you know, carbon offsets and all of that kind of stuff and trying to do the right thing by the environment, flying a little bit less um, and it saves you time. So you get this sort of double benefit. So I think what I've been saying to leaders is now is the great time to sit back and go, out of all of this, what's working? Where are we getting really good value? Where are we missing things? And so which do we want to leave behind and what do we want to take forward into the future? Mm. One of the things for me as a leader of this organisation I could tell straight away when uh, when we all had to work from home in March was that that was going to be fine. Why? Because everyone had been working here for so long and they could log in and continue to do what they needed to do. Where I have concerns, and maybe it comes from, I was 14 years in recruitment and IT recruitment. I had my own recruitment agency for a number of years. And of course, I've been recruiting for my own company now with over 200 employees and and it was, it's clear to me as a leader that um, it's unfair on the, the, not the younger generation, but people joining your organization to, um, to not give them all the, the not invisible nuggets or, or just, they need to connect a lot more dots and for you to really be um, as great a value to yourself and to the organization, you need to be around others to learn how that company works, how that functions. It's harder when you're at home. It's easy to cut and run and work from home. But I think what's going to happen in the long term, I, I've said to the guys, look, I want to work. You tell me whether working from home one day a week is going to work. And then let's, let's look at two. Don't, don't go, all right, well, let's start at four and then work our way back. Because we don't know how that's. There's a lot of meetings that happen. There's a lot of things that, that happen. Even at the moment, like we are... Um, if we want to have a meeting and some of us are at home and some of us are here, there's I don't know, 20, 25 people out of the 100 that work in our office are here. Um, we just sit at our desk, even though there's people all around the corridor, all around the, you know, in their, in their offices, kind of, and then the other half at home because you can't be in the boardroom or we haven't invested in that tech yet to have the big TV and everyone's kind of in one room, So which we, we are getting. Uh, but we, we haven't really even worked that out yet. It's... It really is complicated. So, so then coming back to your book and then coming back to um, some of the things about being 
let's just t- talk in the first instance about working for someone that's, and I, as I always say, I don't want to go into the book because I want people to buy the book. I'm talking to Michelle Gibbings here, the author of Bad Boss, What to Do If You Work for One, Manage One or Are One, uh, and the publisher is John Wiley, and your book has just been released. Uh, congratulations. And and so if you're, so I don't want to find, don't tell me everything that is in the book, people, you must buy it. Um, but if you're working for one, what are some of the, you know, the things to consider or no, even know, how to even notice whether your, your boss is even a bad boss? Yeah. So I would look at it through two lenses. To what extent do you think they are aware of the impact that they're having? So are they you know, self-aware or completely self-unaware? And to what extent is their behaviour selfless or self-centred? Is it all about them or is it all about the people that they work with? Because that makes a difference. So I, in my, you know, back through my corporate career, quite early on, I worked with this guy, lovely person, awesome human, horrible to work for because he was off the, off the charts disorganised. And I put him in that bad boss category. And so, I, you know, I have different labels for different types of bosses. And I call, you know, he, he was in this believer category because he had low awareness of the impact that his behaviour had on others, but he wasn't selfish. It wasn't all about the, him. He was genuinely caring for his team, but he therefore wouldn't step in and deal with conflict. He wouldn't work through or make tough decisions. He was totally disorganised and that disorganisation would then feed down to people in his team. And so the way that you would deal with someone like that is very different to dealing with someone who is the classic narcissist, can charm the pants off people, but will very happily throw you under the bus if it's going to get them to where they need to get to. Because in that case, it's very much understand their needs, meet their needs, but also be very it's almost like the protection. You need to protect yourself in that environment. And so one of the critical elements um, is understanding the agenda of your boss. And I talk about currency. What's their currency? And therefore, what's the currency that you've got that's actually going to add to that relationship in terms of meeting their needs? But also, how do you protect yourself? What's the self-care strategy that you've got? Because when you work in that environment, it really can take its toll. And so part of it is thinking long-term, going, what's the benefit I'm getting from this role? And how does that set me up for what comes next? But sometimes you also need to put a time limit on it. And by that, I mean, when am I getting out? Because if you stay in a toxic environment for too long, the biggest danger is one, the impact to your mental health and well-being, but also that the bad behaviour rubs off because we know that emotions are contagious, bad leadership is contagious. If you work for a bad leader, there's you know really interesting data which shows you know bad leader, abusive supervision that trickles down to the next layer who then do likewise with their team. Um, and you don't want to be like that. So it's really making that conscious choice. How do I stand in my integrity, back myself for who I want to be, um, and also look after myself physically and mentally? Mm. Of course, as you talk about that, and I'm sure anyone who's listening is thinking, you know, okay, you know, where am I a bad boss? Well, I'm definitely disorganised, um, and I'm I'm all over the place. But one of the things I think, and this just gives people an insight, perhaps, into Booktopia and and how. How come we've been successful in spite of there being a bad boss running the organization? I mean, I'm a good boss in some areas. I think everyone needs to come to terms with it. You can't, it's not, this is not about being perfect boss. 
Um, you cannot be the perfect boss. It's impossible. There's too many, too many um, agendas and 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 you know requests and things. You simply cannot um, please everyone. It's really it's really tricky. So, so to to be the best that you can be, um, for me, is about having a very clear horizon point. So um, I know where we're heading, and therefore it's easier for everyone else to kind of go right. That's that's where we're going. Yeah, um, that that helps me. I think in t terms of um, um, cre creating some sort of alignment or some sort of purpose or some sort of um, um, you know guiding point to to recorrect if they feel like they're off course. Um, that that that's what I've done. Um, I think you touch on a really good point, which is you can't be perfect. And so it's, you know, I make that really clear in the book where I talk about the sort of the ultimate good boss, which is the liberator. And it's, no one's perfect. Um, but when you, and I mean, I would put you in the good boss category because you know where you've got an area to improve on in terms of, and also even if you say, well, I'm, I'm disorganized, you've probably got structures around you that manage that, that means that it still works. And so, you know, part of being a leader is actually working out where am I not good? Where am I really strong? And then how do I build teams around me that actually leverage the strengths and actually sort of provide that support mechanism around the bits where you need some help? Um, because when you do that, you're also bringing your best, but you're also enabling other people to bring their best as well. One of the things that I discovered, um, you know, from my wife, and it's about being bad husband versus perfect husband, um, is that she worked out that um, my son, her stepson, um, had something going on and he was diagnosed uh, three, four years ago with ADHD. And by him getting on the medication, he's, you know, went from a straight B's and C's with me being called to the head headmistress office, uh, the principal's office, I should say, um, and, and she and you know like to straight A's and my wife said to me I reckon you've got ADHD as well I said well if you're right about my son then you know you could very well be right and so I, I go in and I talk to the psychiatrist and he goes there's no way you have ADHD I mean look at Booktopia successful you've done this you've done that all these things accomplished right and then before I make my final decision I'd like my I'd like your wife to come in and we can have a chat as well so a week later we go in together and after about 20 minutes minutes of him talking to her he looks at me and he goes you definitely have ADHD <laughs> and, and so and and what what I learned from that and I think this is interesting for anyone who's working with people that perhaps have uh, we all have mental health uh, mental health is not it's it's you know we've all, we all have a brain and we've got a mind and we've got ways and systems and processes that we think so we're always dealing with with a very fluid environment with with everyone that we meet and talk to and ha and work for or manage or negotiate with and and so to, to me it's like once I knew that that's what was going on um, and why I got 56% of my HSC and, and went to uni and mastered in space invaders and snooker and failed on accounting and economics and dropped out after six months is with ADHD you really do what you want to do and you don't do what you don't want to do Yep. So you, uh, for me as the boss, I now need to make sure that I'm handing over and the things that I really don't want to do are being managed well and and those people are empowered to do those things. Because what I do do well, Booktopia is what it is today, 
to a degree, not because of just because of me, but my, you know, whatever small part, because with this many people now, um, it's way bigger than one or even 10 or 50 people. And, and that's, I think, an important, I, from my perspective, for those that are listening, I think that's an important thing to, to check in and go, all right, what, are, you know, what's going on? Because there's a lot of things that go on outside of work uh, in people's lives right now. Uh, there could be a divorce. There could be some health, health scare, a financial scare. Uh, there could be things going on with their kids that they won't even share. But it yeah. manifests in the workplace with, it does. with a lot of trauma that is being all of a sudden someone has blown up and 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 dumped onto somebody else because you know they were getting berated at home or or um, or their kid is doing something that they you know that's really irritating them or their parents are unwell and they're worried about their health. So many things. It's it's impossible to and pe- people need to be mindful about that. Obviously. Well, you can't leave your emotions at home. You know, you think about it as as we're a whole person and emotions and our emotions change through the day and all of that kind of stuff and I think it's really you know one of the critical parts for leaders is having someone that they that they really trust who can hold the mirror up to them that can challenge how they think they're seeing things and how they're behaving and you know for me I mean for you it's your wife for me it's my husband Now Craig is very good at kind of going really is that what you think is really going on um and He's good because he just sees the world so differently to me. My husband grew up in India. Um, so you wouldn't think with a name like Craig Salisbury that he's India, but my husband, you know, came to Australia when he was 17. And he just has a very different worldview. And so sometimes I know one of my sort of blind spots is I can be quite black and white about things. And he's very much in the shades of grey. And so he's very good at seeing different perspectives and being able to go, actually, Michelle, if I was in that perspective, I'd be seeing it like this. And that's really important to have people around you who help challenge those assumptions and expectations that you have. And that's the the hardest thing that we have as humans is we think that our brain, you know, this almighty brain is infallible. We think that it's, you know, and yes, it can make decisions really, really quickly, but it makes a decision based on what it's experienced and what it's seen in the past. And the challenge is, and, you know, particularly if you look at the moment, we're in a time that we've never experienced before. And so we're making decisions using something that's data and ex- experiential and assumptions from the past to actually help us to decide what to do now and into the future. And that can be that can be hard and that can be, it can open you up to making sort of fairly poor decisions. And, you know, we think that we are rational. All the research will show big chunks of our decision-making is done by the emotional part of the, the brain. And so if you don't understand what's the emotional state you are in when you're making a decision, it can have a huge impact on the type of decision that you make. From from your experience um, dealing with corporations or dealing with, you may have in now, maybe you'll get more of it, being brought in to deal with either bad bosses or bad team leaders or, or troublesome team. Is there anything that um, we need to be mindful in terms of um, you know, overstepping the mark with legal um, or political correctness or uh, things that may um, backfire on you when you you, you you read a book like yours and then you go, right, I'm going to make an impact here. And then all of a sudden all backfires on you because you were trying to be, you had a bad, you had a bad boss who worked for you, for example, and you thought you were, were um, investing 
in in them, but then all of a sudden you end up in court for constructive dismissal, or there's some other thing that goes on where um, they're they're you know impacting their team and everyone's leaving because they're so distressed. Can it backfire to be? Um, are there any cautionary tales that you need to be aware of? Uh, look, I, obviously you always need to do the right thing and abide by the law, but it's also the intent of the action. Um, and, you know, most senior executives these days have clauses in there around behaviour and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the contractual terms under which they are hired, behaving ethically and being a good leader is usually a big part of that. Um if you are trying to change the culture of the organisation from being a toxic, challenging culture to a culture where there's still challenge because you need challenge, challenge is actually a really important part of having an innovative culture, but a culture where there is psychological safety, where people feel that they can turn up and authentically be themselves, that means that there may be people who don't fit that culture and who choose to go, I don't want to be a part of that. And what the biggest it's interesting because you were talking before about being in, in recruitment. So I'm sure you've got some interesting stories in terms of ha- recruitment. But, you know, I used to often see people would hire, oh, yeah, oh, I just felt really comfortable. They, You know, I could see how they could fit. And I go, that can be really dangerous because sometimes the person that you need in the team is someone who thinks differently, who has a different perspective and a different background. And that doesn't mean it's going to be comfortable but it means you're going to make better decisions. And, you know, the research shows that diverse teams make better decisions because of the way they break apart problems, because you've got different people in the room. And so when we go for homogeneity, when we go for we want everyone to be the same, that creates issues. And so there's this real balance between we want an environment where we embrace diversity, when we embrace challenge, but also people need to self-select out if that's not the environment that they want to be a part of. And I've seen organisations where they've said that. They've said, look, hey, this is the type of culture we're moving towards. Um, And if you don't want to be a part of that, that's your choice and you're free to go. But if you want to be a part of this type of culture, this is what it means. But if you're going to do that as an organisation, you have to back it up with consequences. And by that, I mean, if you're saying this is the type of culture and therefore the type of leadership behaviours that we want, if senior leaders are not living up to those behaviours, they need to be asked to leave. And, you know, sometimes it happens and we've seen recent cases where it's happened, but for some of those organisations, they were kind of dragged kicking and screaming to get those senior leaders to leave. Mm. So so people who are listening here, they're obviously thinking of others, um, you know, who it's nice to be able to, you know, draw up a list, um, good bosses, bad bosses, good team team players, bad team players, and, you know, pick your teams. Um, but in terms of an internal um you know, journey in terms of um, people who are listening and, and any, you know, my, I'm asking this on behalf of myself first, um, you know, what, what should I be, um, what should I be asking or what question, what sort of, what are the, some of the first things that I should kind of um, put down on paper or contemplate or just kind of um, explore to work out um on track or off track, what you know? What can we do for ourselves first? Because then, yep. I, I'm sure that if you invest in yourself, uh, you're gonna you're gonna start making other people notice that, boy, what's happened to them? They're really probably how your ex colleagues from many years ago think about you now. Go, what happened to her? Was she just thought differently, and she made 
decisions that defined her. So, you know, what are some of the first things to kick us off in the right direction? One of the best things that you can do is get objective feedback. And that was one of the, um, I guess, the kind of critical turning points for me is I had a 360 done. And so we put the 360 degree feedback. It was, you know, my boss, my boss's boss, my peers, my direct reports, kind of other people that I uh, spent a lot of time with. And you get it and you look at it and, you know, you self-rate yourself as well. And so you can then see what's the gap between how I see myself and how other people experience me. And you go, oh, right, ouch, that hurts. And so, because you can't run away from the data. And then when you look at the data, you can see where are there areas that I'm doing really well, but also where are the areas that I need to work on? And I know for me, um, the one of the critical areas was, you know, I was high on control. You know, I was perfectionist, very driven. And so I liked things done in a certain way. So for my team, they were like, you know, we know you mean well and you want to bring out the best in us but you like controlling everything, you need to back off. Um, and so as a leader, it's very easy to have your own interpretation of how things are going. When you get objective feedback, you've got something that you can then work with and build a plan. And that plan is that, you know, I'm here and I want to be this type of leader. So here are all the things that I need to do to close the gap. And that doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight. It is really an iterative process where you continue to invest in yourself and you continue to learn. And that investment is not just sitting back and waiting for your organization to develop you. As a leader, that's your, you know, if that's your kind of profession, it's your job to invest in yourself. Now, I, you know, some organizations are amazing and spend a lot of money investing in their leaders. And I was very fortunate in terms of some of the investment that was put towards me when I was working in corporate, but that didn't also stop me investing in myself. And so every year as a leader, set aside some money. What are you doing this year that is building your toolkit? And there's also so much out there that you can do that is free and some really good development work. Like what, for example? So there's all these there's things called MOOCs, Mass Online Open Courses. So I have done courses through Berkeley, Harvard, Yale, haven't cost me a cent. Um, I, I, it just spins me out um, because the way their model works is it's all, it's all videotaped, you get coursework, you pay if you want the certificate. Now, for me, I didn't need the certificate. I wanted the learning. Um, and so there's sites, edX, Coursera, Udemy, um, Open to Learning. Some of those, you know, you can pay um, to do courses as well. But, but the access to content and ideas is phenomenal. Mm, that's amazing. I didn't really, maybe I heard of that, but I didn't realise it was, it was the certificate as how they remunerate themselves. That's, that's clever. It, it is. So, you know, I've done, and I've done really sort of unusual things. I've learned, you know, program around immunity to change. I've learned about the science of happiness. Um, I did a um, behavioral economics course from some university in Canada. So, you know, and yes, you know, that's not directly sort of leadership, but the behavioral economics is really fascinating because what it helps you understand is the, you know, we talk about nudge behavior is how you can nudge behavior by different processes and systems that you can set up because our brain makes decisions in ways that is sometimes illogical. Mm. So you could 
you could end up with a very big business card with all those, you know, courses and Yale, Harvard, you know, Quebec University, <laughs> uh, Notre Dame, Paris, like you end up with all these. Well, I always say to people, fall in love with learning. Um, you know, if you fall in love with learning, I mean, look, you run a book company, you must love learning because um, you love books. And I think with even with books, um, you know, you can't see, but I'm similar to you. I have this massive bookshelf um, in my in my study and I just love learning. And I find the leaders who love learning don't get scared by change in the same way because they know, well, okay, if things are changing, that's okay. I'll just learn a new skill or I'll learn a new process or a new way of thinking that's all okay. Whereas if you go, well, I've done it. It's, you know, I'm a senior leader. I've got everything I need. I don't need to learn anything more. That shrinks you and shrinks your capacity. Mm. So, and leading, leading comes from when you're not leading is one of the things that I've um, observed where you know, where do great leaders come from? Where do leaders within your organization? If I look at Booktopia, where, you know, it was just one person in 2004 and now um, well over 200 people now in 2020. And a lot of our leaders have come from within the organization. They're in customer service and they've been around for a while and they've, okay, we've attracted a lot of great leaders as well, but um, it's, it's, it comes from, from uh, within. It, it's not like you don't, you don't go to, uh, you know, you don't even go to high school or you, I mean, okay, at high school, there are leaders, there's prefects and captains and all those things. And maybe that's where actually some of the judgments come in from school where oh, I was never a captain. I was never a prefect, which I wasn't. Um, and then you go, no, I've never, I never really, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not leadership quality. Um, so how do we, how do we think about some of the people within our organization and identify people who are future leaders and, because they're all potential future leaders. What do we what do we look for? Well, and I think it's interesting. You know, Brené Brown talks about you know, she, she has a definition of leadership, which is not a hierarchical definition. It's very much about you know a leader is someone who actually who has the capacity to provoke change and also to bring out the best in people around them. Now, that's a paraphrase of her of her her definition, and I like it because people often look about to leadership as being hierarchical. How far up the organizational food chain can I get? And the challenge that we face in organizations is people go, but I want to advance, but I don't really want to manage people. But the only way I can advance is to manage more teams. And so when we then end up with this sort of conundrum where you have people who are managing teams because they want to be more senior and they want the sort of the, you know, maybe the status, the money or whatever else goes with having that bigger role, but they don't want to manage teams. And I think organisations need to grapple with that, that there should be that, it's almost like a dual track where you go, okay, this is about being a leader and raising leaders versus this is about being an expert, a technical expert. And if you're a technical expert, you may not need to manage people because often technical experts don't want to manage people. And so I think it's having those types of conversations because it's really working out, why do you want to be a leader? What do you think leadership actually means? Um, because leadership isn't about the title. Leader is Leadership isn't about the power that you have over people. Leadership is about how do you bring out the best in people? Because what you're trying to do is look across and go, let's bring these people together so that we can actually get more done together than we could have if we were working in isolated environments. So, 
So that's a good point. I know so many talented um, people, people who who are not leaders at all, but they've they're they're technical experts. They're they've they've learned they've learned uh, to be of value to to themselves and to others by knowing a hell of a lot of stuff, and people want to pay them a lot of money. And we absolutely, like you look at society and go, we need those types of people, um, but they are sometimes not good at bringing out the best in their team because they're so focused on the detail and they can just get so immersed in whatever it is that they're working on, they don't have time to put their head up to spend with their team. And I often think, you know, sometimes we overcomplicate leadership. And I, um, you know, often joke, you know, you look at the number of leadership sort of philosophies and frameworks, you know, you can be an authentic leader, you can be a servant leader, you can be an adaptive leader, you can be a distributed leader, you name it. Um, and there's multiple different tools and, that assess leadership styles. And they're all great, but they provide a little bit of a problem, which is this sense that there's, here's the perfect leader, here's the 10 step, you know, tick this off and then you're done. And leadership doesn't work like that. Leadership is contextual and it's also very personal because how I operate as a leader and how you operate are different and they should be different because we're different people. Um, and we will bring out the best in people in different ways because we have different styles. And I think that's the key part through all of this as well is how do you embrace the diversity of different leadership styles without trying to get people to be cookie cutters of each other because that doesn't work. I'm I'm can self-assess. I'm sure my team would happily contribute as well and and give their um, you know I won't say vicious um, but but cutting feedback. Um, I'm more, definitely more of a macro leader, so I'm thinking more of the big picture. I do not want to micromanage. I want to empower here. This is what you need to do. Go off and do that. And I, I, want, I want to leave you to, to that and let you go on with it. Um, probably because I'm lazy or, um, you know, uh, lacking in responsibility. But where I, where I add the most value and where it's been interesting to, to transition through different levels of the organization where um, um, you're going from one person to 10 people to 20, 50, 100, 200, like, you're more involved in the micro. You can't be a macro leader when you're still at a micro level. And uh, to have Booktopia have grown so much over so many years, I've had to, um, you've got to let go of a lot of things. There's a, there's a, um, it's really important, I think, one of the things that, that I've done well is, is the letting go of, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, I know you're not going to do it as good as me, but go and do it because that's, one more person or a group of people doing it that uh, that's going to get us there. I remember in the very beginning we had a uh, there was another online book retailer who was who was um, maybe about half that we were probably turning over ten million and they were maybe I think we were at five million and they were turning over two million something like that it was very very early on. And I checked in with him and I said, "How are you going?" And he goes, "Oh, I've had eighteen angina attacks in the last three months." And I said, "Oh my God, what are you doing?" And he goes, "Well, you know, my wife and I are working eighteen hours a day." 18 hours a day. I said, how many people have you got there? He goes, we've got two casuals. And we had about I don't know, 15, 20. I don't know how many people we had at the time. I said, mate, you've got to hire more people. And he said, look, they just don't do the work as good as us. He just couldn't let go. And even though someone would be doing it at 50, 60, 70% as good as him, it was still something. And that's one of the things um, I think as a leader or to, to lead, you've got to be able to let go. Have you got any 
kind of words of wisdom from where you know where you sit when you deal you're dealing with leadership all, all the time around that it's about priorities like what really matters the most to you and where and and then it's like the risk kind of trade off because you're making decisions all the time around if this happens in a way that is not to a certain standard is that going to impact the customer experience or is that actually going to end up with an issue that's then going to be bigger down the track to deal with? Um, because often it's not about the person doing it in a way that's not as good. It's that they're going to do it differently. And I think, you know, for, for people who run their own businesses as well, you've invested so much of your heart and soul in bringing that business to life that so much of you is connected into it that you want things done in a certain way. And so it is that step back of going, actually, if this gets done in a different way, as long as it gets to whatever that outcome is. And so often I say to people, it's about working out what does that outcome look like? So you might go, the outcome needs to be, it's delivered on a Friday, it's wrapped up with a pink bow, it gets off to the customer at X speed, whatever but it doesn't matter the process that they've used to get to the outcome. But are you clear on what that outcome is? Because I think often what leaders do is they then delineate the process and they don't need to. Um, and so, and, and I think also sometimes leaders forget the power that they have. I always remember this story and I won't mention which organisation it was, but it's a Friday afternoon and they're having drinks in the sort of the executive um, floor area and the CEO casually makes a comment, gee, the room, it's a really ugly colour. Who would have chosen this colour? That's all they said. They turn up on Monday morning and the whole floor had been repainted. Now, the, the CEO was like, what just happened? And the, this person who ran the floor said, well, you said on Friday you didn't like the colour, so we've changed it. And the CEO just hadn't realised the power. Their throwaway comment for that person was taken as a criticism and, oh, my God, I'm not doing my job well enough. I need to shift this and do something. And so I think that's the real, you know, it's really hard as leaders because, you know, you know, you know you have power because you've got decision-making power, but sometimes you don't realise how much power you have. Um, and Dasha Keltner, who runs the Berkeley uh, greater good science center at Berkeley University and you know I often say to people you people have you know uh, you know people idolize uh, movie stars I idolize academics so here's my deep inner nerd coming out because I just think his work is fantastic um, and he wrote this book the power paradox and he talks about how people don't just take power power is given to them so, you know, you're in a position of power because you've created a business, the business has been successful. So power is conferred because of the success that you've had. And so the same in, in organisations, people get to more senior roles because people see that they're doing a good good job, so then they get, they get promoted. What happens, though, is our very experience of having power, in a sense, corrupts us. And he has found that people who feel more powerful or more likely to cheat to break the road rules and just break rules in general because they don't think the rules apply to them. And then there's really interesting parallel research, which was done by the University of Southern California and the London Business School, where they looked at the correlations between power and I think I'm right. And the people who felt more powerful were more likely to think that their opinion is right. And you go, wow, that is really dangerous in an organisation because you've got a bunch of people sitting around a table who all think they're powerful. And, you know, when you're in those big roles, you do feel power. And I know what it feels like. I've been there. You feel powerful. But that can then impact 
how right you think you are. And so that's a real kind of trick. You know, it's, it's very easy to cast aspersions on leadership. But, you know, when you get into those roles, it can be really hard if you're not aware of the dangers that are around you because you fall into this trap of, you know, you love the position, you like having power, you can make decisions. And then one day you wake up and you go, wow, I thought I was the smartest person in the room. And actually, you're not the smartest person in the room. And the danger with that whole kind of mantra is you've stopped listening. And as soon as you've stopped listening as a leader, it's kind of all over Red Rover. That's one of the things that I think in terms of, like you said that earlier on that I'm oh, I'm a book person. I'm actually not. I'm I very very rarely read. Um, I listen to podcast. I listen to books. I'm listening to um, uh, Yuval Noah Harari's book at the moment. Ah. Actually, I just finished uh, Sapiens, and I'm now gone straight on to uh, twenty one. Um, what is it? 21 Lessons something. for the twenty first century. Twenty first century. Yeah, it. yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, so I just started that this morning, driving into work, and. And so I'm not really a book person, but what I what I observed, I think that was actually an advantage because um, the book industry, there was so many people looking at the world, uh, you know, the world is flat, it's the way it's always was, so it's the way it always will be. And I came in with a very different three-dimensional perspective and I looked at it and I go, oh, you just need to do this. And everyone thinks I'm a genius, but I was just had a different perspective, but it doesn't stop me from reminding myself it does you know if i get stuck in that view then that becomes like you you found a view of the valley and the whole and it's different to what the other people had always seen and i came along and now i, I look at the valley and it's my valley it's just some other view that someone else is going to take at some point um it could be digitally it could be ai it could be you know virtual reality i don't know and and then that this view is now defunct it's moved on and and so you have to be constantly mindful that that um, just because the perspective gives you a certain view now and that that's um, an advantage or it gives you a certain results is not going to be there forever now and certainly talking about not being there forever michelle we're coming to the end of our journey together michelle gibbings the author of bad boss what to do if you work for one manage one or are one hopefully you've been inspired today to go online and and buy buy her book or go into your local store please support your local store they're very passionate about books and and part of your community so I, we encourage you to do that as well before we close though is there anything when you think back of what we've talked about today that mm, we never talked about that or we should have mentioned that or is there anything that we you know you want to leave with us in terms of um, our time together today I, I think that it's it's interesting because when I wrote the book, I had a couple of people who found the title negative and I said, it's actually not a negative book. It's actually a book of hope and a book of inspiration because what I really want through this is for everybody to own their part because if everybody in the relationship owns their part, does their best, you know, on occasion steps in and has those courageous conversations, then we stand a chance of having better environments in which we work. And that's what everyone wants. You know, no one wants to turn up to work and work in a place that they don't enjoy being there. And so, you know, if this book helps people do that, then I feel like I've contributed in a way that's meaningful and that um, that will make me happy. Yeah, that's a, that's so great because I feel it. I feel like with what you've, with the subject matter you've tackled here, although, um, I mean, it's, it's thought provoking, it, it is. Um, there are other books that have 
much more crude swear words in them that have done extremely well around the world um, as the ones that I'm sure we all think of. Um, so it's not, it's not that, it's not that, um, um, you know, off the range, it's provocative. And that's what I think that you're trying to do is provoke us to rethink, um, to, to challenge um, the, the paradigms that we are living in. And so congratulations, Michelle, on your book. Um, everyone, get yourself a copy or give it to somebody in your organization who's a little bit on, you know, on the spectrum when it comes to bossiness. Um, and it's coming up to Christmas, you know, you can wrap it, gift wrap with a little bow, and maybe it, it should be, in, it, it's a Kris Kringle, so nobody knew who gave it to them, right? <laughs> and it's just like, it ends up in their in-tray or, you know, that, there you go, there's an idea. Thank you again for coming on to Plugged and Unplanned, and we look forward to hearing what happens next week. Oh, my pleasure, and thank you so much for asking me. It's been absolutely, it's been great. Good on you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.